Good morning. As TJ was singing, I thought of Romans 6:23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Aren't you glad of that this morning? My name is Shane McGuire. I'm one of the lay elders here at Sylvania. For those who don't know me, my pronouns are he and him. But my adjectives this morning are nervous and shaky because though I've preached here before, I've never preached when our pastor is staring at me. And I'm a little nervous. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, Acts the third chapter. The reading will be lengthy, but the sermon will not. We'll start in Acts 3, 1, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 4. Our topic this morning is going to be resurrection and repentance. Resurrection and repentance. We are going to see resurrection typified in a miracle, declared in a sermon, and then we're going to see the apostles' call for repentance because the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ demands repentance. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham and in your offspring or seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men who came, the number of the men came to about 5,000. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. In the first century Jewish mind, the temple would be the place where heaven and earth meet. It is the place where sacrifices to God are are made. It is the place where man seeks atonement for his sins. And it is the place that Jesus came and said, I am the temple. The temple economy no longer has bearing under Christ, for he himself declared that he was the temple and that he would be taken down and raised up on the third day. And so when Peter and John come to the temple, there is going to be a provocation. And that provocation, interestingly, begins with a healing. So in the very shadow of the temple, this lame man who has been lame for birth gives an ask to the apostles. And what he asks for is money. He's hoping that these apostles are going to give him some coin. And the response of the the response of the apostles is a demand that this man look at them. Look at this. They declare, "Look at us" in verse 4. And this lame beggar fixes his attention on them because he's expecting to receive alms. He's expecting to receive a gift of money. Later, probably recalling this scene, Peter would write that you have been ransomed. And you have been ransomed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but by the imperishable blood of Christ, and they are not there to give this man money, are they? You're going to see, if you read through the book of Acts, that the miracles in Acts are there really for two reasons. One is to verify the messianic claims of Christ. And two is to validate apostolic authority as they make those claims about Christ. And what are the messianic claims of Christ? He's the son of God 
He has come to die or give his ransom as a as a ransom for many. And he's going to be crucified and buried and taken up on the third day. That's the testimony of Christ. That's his messianic claim that he is the son of God who died for your sin and was raised on the third day. Now, when you're standing at the temple. That presents a problem. As you know, Jesus in the Gospels is really pitted against two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'm going to do for the kids something I wish people did for me when I was a little kid. Okay, so if you're if your age is five to eleven. So before you raise your hand for me. Okay, you may not be eligible to be Baptist anymore because you just did that. Raised your hand in church. But you can put them down. Or I want you to repeat after me. Tilly, are you going to repeat after me? All right. Say Pharisee. All right. Now all of you say Sadducee. And now all of you, the kids, say resurrection. Okay. Now listen, I'm going to tell you the difference, kids, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in a doctrine of resurrection. And the Sadducees did not. And that is why they were sad, you see. (laughs) And you'll never forget it. Forty years from now, some of these kids will remember that. right? And I wish somebody had done that to me when I was seven years old. And I would just know that that's the main difference. So the Sadducees do not believe in a doctrine of resurrection. Part of that is because they only accept the first five books of the Bible. They only accept the books of Moses. And so if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you, go to the Old Testament and prove up the doctrine of resurrection. And I armed you with a Bible and a concordance or the Internet. You start Googling around, doing a word search. You would probably come. Your first go to would be Daniel chapter 12. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse two, Daniel says that on the last day, some will those who are asleep in the earth. Some will be raised up to eternal life and others will be raised to shame and eternal contempt. Or you might go to the book of Ezekiel and read the prophecy or the vision of the valley of dry bones. That's where we would typically go if you were just looking for a quick, short, shortcut to here's a picture of resurrection in the Old Testament. That doesn't work for the Sadducees. They reject those books as canonical. You can find it subtly in the books of Moses as well. Those of you who recall uh, our pastor's sermon through Hebrews, you know that the writer of Hebrews proves up the resurrection through the faith of Abraham and says, recalls that in Genesis chapter 22 on Mount Moriah, right after the sacrifice of Isaac and Isaac is preserved. Yahweh says, through your son, Isaac, shall your offspring be named. And we read that God, that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac even from the dead, from which he figuratively received him back after the sacrifice was provided. So you could read the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah and say, "Okay, here is a picture of resurrection. Jesus did it in a slightly different way. 
If you recall in Matthew 22, Jesus is confronted by a number of Sadducees. And he is confronted with a reductio ad absurdum argument. That is, I'm going to take your I'm going to take this claim and I'm going to reduce it to an absurdity and catch you. That's what they did to him. And so it's I, I call it the seven brides for seven brothers parable. Okay, or it's one bride for seven brothers, I guess. But there's a movie called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But so the Sadducees come up to Jesus. He says, "Well, the law of Moses says." That if a man dies, his wife is given to his brother. Now, assume with me that a man is married, no children, and, is, and he dies. And his wife goes to his brother. And then assume with me that he dies. And his wife goes to another brother. And now assume that that happens and happens and happens again. And Jesus, you assume with us that it happens seven times. Jesus, who is that woman married to in this resurrection that you preach about? They're trying to catch him. They've taken this claim Jesus has been preaching about resurrection, and they're trying to catch him in an absurd rendition of it. And Jesus says, you're wrong. Because you have neither understanding of the scriptures nor of the power of God for in the resurrection. People are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said? And he quotes here Genesis, Exodus chapter three at the burning bush, where Yahweh says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says he is not the God of the dead but of the living. And people marvel at this teaching that Jesus gave. So when the apostles are in the shadow of the temple, which is under the control of a wicked man named Caiaphas and his minions, who reject the doctrine of resurrection, they're there not only to be merciful to this lame beggar, they're going to pick a fight. And this miracle that's performed This man lame from birth who is told to rise and walk. That is a miracle that typifies the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, every time you see a miracle like that in the Gospels or Acts, those miracles are preaching a sermon to you. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. When Jesus says, she is not dead, but doth she sleep. And raises a girl from the dead. When Jesus heals the paralytic and says, pick up your mat and walk. Every one of those miracles is a sermon by Christ of the resurrection of the dead and preeminently the resurrection of Christ. So they're there to pick a fight and they start like gangbusters. And they say, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we'll give to you. Rise and walk and they take that man by the hand and he gets up. And it's public and it's immediate and it is incontrovertible because everybody knew who that man was. And so they march right into the temple. And I want you to see the posture of this lame beggar. Go to verse 11. While he clung To Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. 
This idea of clinging here, this is the type of word you would use to seize somebody as an arrest. It is latching onto them in such a way that you're not going to let go of that person. You're grabbed onto them. You're trying to get some form of control. You're not going to let that person get away from you. This lame beggar who can now walk and who can now run, who's been praising God, is not going to leave the side of the apostle. He wants to hear what these men of God have to say. He wants to hear this sermon that Peter is about to preach. And we read the second sermon Peter has in the book of Acts. And you're going to see the following elements in the sermon. One. He's going to give glory to God. Two. He's going to blame this audience for killing Jesus. Three. He's going to declare the deity and the messiahship of Christ Four, he is going to declare the resurrection of Christ. Five, he's going to make a call to repentance. Six, he makes a declaration that we live in an age of fulfillment. And seven, he's going to give a dire warning and a glorious promise. Take a look at 12 through 16. We'll read it again. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Power or piety. You know who had power among the Jews at this time? It's the Sadducees. They have wedded themselves to Rome. They have wedded themselves to a wicked king, Caesar. And they have their power because they pay fealty to him. They have found their kingdom in this world. The Sadducees have power. The Pharisees had a piety, a false piety, but a piety. They thought external displays of piety would bring about the kingdom of God. They didn't understand the true nature of the kingdom or what it is this Messiah Christ would come do. And so Peter and John say, this is not us. It is not by our own power or piety that this man is healed. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, this God of the living who glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. That's the God who made this man whole. The apostles reject glorification of themselves and declare that God should have the glory of all things. And in the midst of this, this is two sermons in a row by Peter. He's done this, by the way. In Acts chapter 2, he says to his audience, you delivered over Jesus by the hands of wicked men according to the foreordained plan of God. This is Peter's second sermon in a row that he blames his audience explicitly for crucifying Jesus. He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men in chapter 2. And here, 
Here he says, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. And I'm going to tell you this morning, you killed the author of life. I killed the author of life. We killed the author of life. Paul would write to the church at Rome that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Christ died as a ransom for sin and not the sin only of these men in Peter's audience, not the sin only of the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He died for your sin. Fletcher, he died for your sin. He died for my sin. We put him to death. We're to blame for the murder of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is powerful stuff. And Peter is not shy about telling his audience that you're to blame for this. The one who gave me power, who gave the power to heal this man is the one you put to death. And in the midst of that, he says, not only did this Jesus have power, but who is he? 14, he is the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. Psalm 16 and 10 says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your what? Holy one see corruption. It's a meaningful psalm to the apostles. That citation to Psalm 16 and 10 appears in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It also appears in Paul's first sermon that's recorded in Acts in Acts chapter 13. The idea that Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he is the Holy One who would not see corruption, who would not be abandoned by the Father. That is meaningful to the apostles. It is a declaration by them to the audience that this one whom you put to death, this is the one for whom you had been waiting. This is the one who would redeem you. Isaiah says that the Messiah would reign with justice and righteousness. The Messiah was to be the holy one, the righteous one. And Peter takes it to the next level. We'll talk about a provocation. He calls Jesus the author of life. You know who the author of life is? That's God. The author of that is the exclusive province of God. This is a declaration by Peter that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the God man, man in Messiah, God and the author of life. And this author of life was killed. But the story would not end there. Read on. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the what? He raised him from the dead. Life coming from death is the great leitmotif of scripture. Do you know that? Start at the very beginning with ex nihilo creation. God creates something out of nothing. What happens when Adam and Eve sin in the garden? 
God had told them, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. But their sin gets covered through the slaying of animals. Consider Sarah's womb being opened, life coming from death. Indeed, Paul tells us it's a double miracle because Abraham was as good as dead. Consider Joseph, the story of Joseph, thrown into a pit not once but twice. He's resurrected twice in that story, sold by his brothers into slavery, brought up out of the pit, put into prison unlawfully and wrongfully through the allegation of Potiphar. Brought up again, he's resurrected twice, and then his family comes to see him, and what happens? This is the son, the son of Jacob, who was dead, and now he's alive. This Jesus Christ is the son of Jacob, who was dead, and now is alive. All these things point to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? There is no forgiveness of your sin or my sin for nailing the author of life to the cross. Absent the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that act demands our repentance. Go to 17. The transition Peter makes now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets That as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That your sins may be blotted out. This resurrection of Jesus Christ demands that we repent of our sin. And this healing of the lame beggar is to typify your salvation. And the lame beggar, you know, whenever I read this story, it reminds me of the story in 2 Samuel 9 of Mephibosheth. Here's a man lame from birth in Acts. And Mephibosheth, if you you don't know the story, he's crippled in his feet. He's crippled in his feet because in the midst of war, his mom, when he was a child, is running away. She's fleeing. And she falls. And he's... Severely injured. Can't walk. And as you know, there had been a battle in Israel. Long-term war. There's an internecine fight. And Saul is dead. And Jonathan is dead. And David wants to extend a blessing, a display of mercy to someone within the house of Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake, because he loves him. And he looks around and says, is there anyone left in the house of Jonathan that I may bless? And the servant says, there's one person. His name is Mephibosheth, and he's crippled in his feet. And he said, go get him. And in that story, it is just enigmatic of your salvation. The king says, go fetch the one whom I am choosing. The servant there typifies the Holy Spirit going to grab the man who cannot walk. And he brings Mephibosheth to the king. And the king says, I am going to give you treasure upon treasure, house upon house, servant upon servant, gold upon gold. And you're going to eat at my table. And Mephibosheth says, who is your servant that you would look upon me? A dead dog such as I. 
And he ends up a dead dog at the king's table. This man lame at his feet brought to the king. And so they had opened this sermon by healing a man lame in the feet, a man who could not walk. And they made his ankle strong and his leg strong immediately and irrevocably in front of the group. And he's clinging to the apostles. And they preach the resurrection of Christ, the king. And they say, you must repent. And dear friend, listen to me this morning. Listen to me. If you don't know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you lie not in the in the beggar, beggar's rags. You're in the death shroud of sin. And if you want to exchange the death shroud of sin for the glorious white raiment of Christ, that is only by grace and through faith and your repentance in the Lord Jesus. Life from death. You're a dead man walking if you don't know Jesus. But God. Isn't that a great phrase? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us what? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your salvation, dear friend, is life coming from death. It is just like the resurrection of Christ. It is just as much of a miracle as the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You were dead, Mike, and he made you alive, didn't he? Peter would later write, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we would die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we have been healed. And when the crimson blood of Christ flowed down to Golgotha's dark brow. It was the greatest act of love that has ever been seen on this land. It is the greatest act of love because it is that act, Sean, that could make you alive when you were dead. You hear me? Isn't that right? When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. For he does not believe in the name of the only son of God. This is a big deal. Listen, eternity is at stake. We need to be praying for our children. That they would come to know the Lord, that they, that the Lord would grant them repentance. Every visitor to our church, we need to pray that they're a child of God. Every longtime church member, we need to pray that there's true repentance and fruit thereof to display that they're a child of God. We need to be praying for each other to make sure that the light within us is not darkness. Amen? Eternity is at stake. Peter moves on to say that we live because of this Christ, because of this Messiah, because of this God man, that we live in an age of fulfillment. Go to verse 22. Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed when these days now. We live in an age of fulfillment when Christ came. And he was crucified and all those apocalyptic signs occurred. The veil of the temple was rent in two and the sky became dark and the earth quaked and every rock got a crack. The dead rose from the grave. That displayed that we live in a new era. And that new era is the kingdom of God. God, Christ came to inaugurate the kingdom. And he is going to come again in finality to restore all things. But I'm telling you right now, we live in an age of fulfillment. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I come not to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. There had, of course, been a misunderstanding about what the kingdom was. And part of what Jesus' ministry was, was was correcting that understanding. And Peter's going to close his sermon with a warning and a promise. Let's look at the warning, verse 23. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet Jesus shall be destroyed from his people. The idea of being cut off from your people, destroyed from the people. That's thematic in the Old Testament of the destruction of the wicked out of the house of Israel. That's the language the prophets would use for condemnation of those who were from the house of Israel, who rejected Yahweh. And what Peter's saying here is if you reject Christ, you are rejecting the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Peter would later give a warning in 2 Peter 2, 1 against false teachers denying their master who bought them. And the word master there is the Greek word despotos, from which we get our word despot. And if you reject Christ, what Peter is saying here is when Christ comes again, he comes not as loving Savior but as sovereign despot. There's a call to repentance embedded in that. But that warning is bracketed by promise because the promise is greater. And you can look at 21 and 25 as well. Heaven must receive Christ until the time of restoring all things. Christ is going to come restore all things. 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring or seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The, the, the call to the apostles by Christ, the command he gave them before he ascended was you're going to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And right now they're still in Jerusalem. He's saying, you have the great blessing. We're coming to you first to make this declaration that Jesus Christ has come and that he's been raised from the dead and that he is in the process of restoring all things. And this is the fulfillment 
of the great promise made to Abraham so many times in Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 22, and so on. And there would have been a misunderstanding among many, and you see this throughout the Gospels in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, where so often they want to claim to be Abraham's seed, Abraham's offspring. And you may recall Paul, what I call Paul's little grammar lesson in Galatians chapter 3. Do you remember this? Paul says it does not say seeds, meaning many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. Peter's beginning that corrective here. That the great offspring who would come from Isaac wouldn't simply be the physical progeny of Israel. But would be Jesus Christ. He's the king. That is the offspring. That is the seed through through whom just Israel will be blessed. Oh, no. All the families of the earth. And Peter declares the purpose of this resurrection is to turn God's people from their sins. That's another way of saying to make you alive. Because if you're in sin, you're dead. And Peter's saying this resurrection is here and the preaching of this resurrection is here so that you will no longer be dead, but you'll, you'll turn from your sin and be made alive. And so there's two reactions you can have to this. And they're seen here. One is you can praise God. Thank you for saving us. And the lead into that is what happened at the end of Pentecost where the men said, what shall we do? And Peter gave a real simple answer. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus. But if you're not a child of God, your reaction is not to praise And your action is not to repent. Your action is to rebel against the apostle. To rebel against the teaching of God. And whereas the lame beggar clung to the apostles. The guards of the temple would seize Peter and John. The miracles in Acts and the preaching of Acts are there to display and verify the messianic claims of Christ. And that claim, the great claim of Christ, is that he is the son of God. And he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you want to know what a ransom is, it's real simple. You were in bondage. Something was paid. And if the right ransom is paid, the one who is in bondage gets deliverance. And we're called this morning to praise God for that and to repent of our sins and to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. Thank you for sending your son into the world the author of life, to die for your people. Move us to have hearts of repentance, hearts that love you, hearts that reject sin, and hearts that chase after Christ.
and cause us to be witnesses throughout the ends of the earth and our daily walk. In Christ's name, amen.